Elevate 150 Financial Checkups at Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Here's how it works. Go online and schedule a 30-minute phone call. They'll guide you through your credit report to find ways to improve your financial health. Then they'll send $150 in your name to Redeemer Radio. For information, visit NotreDameFCU.com slash elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame FCU. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. The theology of the Eucharist in St. Thomas Aquinas may seem complex, but that complexity is conformed to the tremendous mystery of Christ's gift of himself in the sacrament. There is growth ahead for us, not primarily in understanding the Eucharist as if we could ever achieve something like conceptual mastery, but especially in growing in love for and devotion to the Son of God who acts in love for us. If we can allow St. Thomas to help us raise our minds to the wonders of Christ's Eucharistic gift, perhaps we can then better raise our hearts into union with him. Our guide to helping us learn from St. Thomas's theology of the Eucharist is Dr. Michael Hahn, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. Our conversation today follows from a lecture Dr. Hahn gave at the annual Academy of Catholic Theology Conference, where he spoke on the sacraments and sanctification in the theology of Thomas Aquinas. As for me, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life and the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Lenny. Michael, you've been working on Thomas Aquinas' Theology of the Eucharist, and one of the things that I learned from you in hearing a lecture you gave is the way in which Thomas recognizes a triple signification in the sacrament of the Eucharist. Now, this triple signification has in a way to do with time, the past, the present, the future. I'd really love to start our conversation with you helping us to get our bearings here, especially around this triple signification. But I suppose first, maybe if you could help us to know a little bit more about what Thomas means by a sacrament, what is a sacrament in Thomas's definition? And then from there, what is this triple signification in the sacrament of the Eucharist? Yeah, so for Aquinas, I, I think a real point of emphasis is that sacraments are sanctifying signs. So they, they sanctify by signifying a sacred reality. And, and as you said, it, it's really maybe more accurately sacred realities in the plural. So he'll say, for instance, in the very first question on the sacraments in the, the third part of his Summa Theologia, that a sacrament is a sign of a holy thing so far as it makes a human holy. And right, the signification is said by Thomas to encompass first the cause of human sanctification, then also the form of that sanctification, and finally the end of that sanctification. So with regard to the cause, this is Christ's passion in the past. So a sacrament, all of the sacraments of the new law are a memorial of Christ's passion in the past. 
all of the New Testament sacraments are also an indication of the graces and virtues that are bestowed in the present. This is the the form of sanctification, the, the shape that it takes, you might say. And then third, last but not least, the sacraments are also prognostic proclamations of the end of our sanctification, that is, of eternal life and future glory. So each sacrament is a sign that is going to sanctify by signifying a sacred reality. And the sacred realities that are signified are going to be identified by Thomas in the past with regard to the passion, the present with regard to the graces that are bestowed, and then the future with regard to the end of this sanctification, which is glory. Mm. Now, when he's talking about the Eucharist, he introduces this triple signification with regard to the various names that the sacrament it receives various names that it is called by. So with regard to the past, for instance, he will say it is termed a sacrifice because it represents and commemorates Christ's passion. With regard to the present, it's termed communion because it signifies and establishes the ecclesial unity of head and members. And then with regard to the future, the name that he especially locks onto is viaticum. It prefigures the beatitude and divine fruition of heaven. And also, he says, it provides the way of arriving there. Yeah, you know, I love sort of departing from this definition of sacrament that he gives, as you said, sanctifying signs or the slightly longer definition here, a sign of holy things so far as it makes a human holy. My attention kind of gravitates towards the end of that. Like, it, these are the signs that make a human holy. They're for us. Um, the effect of the sacrament, you could say, is for us to make us holy, to, sanct- to sanctify. So I, I wonder if we could think about, specifically in the sacrament of the Eucharist, maybe in each of those modes of signification that you just drew to our attention, what does the sacrament both give to us or affect in us? And then maybe, on the other hand, what does the sacrament require of us or call forth from us? And maybe to think about this in each of those three modes of signification, like I said. So maybe why don't we start in the present? That's a good place to start, I suppose. Like in that mode of signification, as you said, the Eucharist is named communion. Seen as communion, what does the sacrament in Thomas's view bestow on us? But maybe on the other hand also, like what might it demand of us? Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think an important – kind of additional layer to add mm. to, to any consideration of Aquinas' sacramental theology, and this is certainly the case when it comes to his Eucharistic theology, is kind of a further threefold schema that affords him the opportunity to better distinguish sign and reality in the Eucharist. So he'll do this with other sacraments, but I think it's especially salient for consideration of the Eucharist. What is most evident to the senses, of course, are the material elements of bread and wine. And of course, the accidents of the bread and wine that remain after their consecration. These, Thomas says, are the sign only. So they're going to be signifying in different ways each of those sacred realities with regard to the past, with regard to the present, with regard to the future. The reality that they signify most properly is the spiritual effect of the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. its benefit, its fruit. And this, Thomas has different ways of identifying. So he'll talk about grace, for instance, or charity, or perhaps more pointedly, the spiritual unity of the church. 
These things are not signs in Thomas's control. Rather, they are the reality that is imparted by the sacraments. So we'll need to come back to this in just a moment, because this, I think, is especially pertinent to the idea of the, the form of sanctification in the present that is imparted, grace, charity, and the, the spiritual unity of the church. And of course, right, the elements of bread and wine, this, that which is sign only, these are well suited to this signification. Right. Thomas will draw on a familiar patristic association that is made with regard to the many grains that, that come together to make one bread, the many grapes that come together to make up one wine. So, too, the one church, Christ's mystical body, is formed of many members united by this bond of charity. But the, the third ingredient of this, this threefold schema is kind of this intervening element, which is that which is both reality and sign, res et sacramentum. And that is Christ himself, who is said by Thomas to be truly present in the Eucharist after its consecration. So the presence is itself a sign of the sacrament's spiritual effects, the reality only, so that here the true body of Christ present in the Eucharist signifies the mystical body and the grace and charity united. But it's also an intermediate reality, itself signified by the bread and wine and their remaining accidents. So, so here, Thomas will talk about Christ himself being spiritual food and spiritual drink, providing sustenance and refreshment. So with this in mind, we can turn back to what it is that is signified in the present, and that is the grace and charity that the sacrament imparts. One of the primary points of emphasis in Aquinas' Eucharistic theology is the Eucharist as sacrament of charity. It is a sign we might say, in the first place of Christ's charity, that Christ, out of his great love for man, desires to remain present with man. But it is also a sign of our charity, and it is a sign, but also a cause of this charity. So one of the, I think, most moving elements of Aquinas' Eucharistic theology is his emphasis on the sacramental grace that is imparted. It is not only a bestowal, that is offered to those who are rightly disposed in the sacrament, a bestowal of an increase in, in the uh, habits of grace and charity. But it, in fact, imparts the act of charity as well to those who are well disposed, those who are approaching Eucharistic reception with reverence and with a clear conscience, as it were. So in this regard, it's, it's not so much necessarily what we ourselves are bringing, but rather the extent to which we are disposed to receive what it is that Christ is desiring to give to us. Mm. And in this case, it is, in fact, an act of love. It is a desire for union with the one who is made present in this sacrament, who, by being made present in this sacrament, is drawing near to us and giving to us the graces, the gifts that we need to remain in union with him, to, to abide in him, to use language that recurs in John's gospel, especially. And this ties, I think, into the, the second part of your question, which is what proper disposal to, yeah, what does it demand of us? And, and so here, but Aquinas wants to emphasize the Eucharist as sign and cause of right relationship with Christ. He will talk about a distinction between spiritual and sacramental eating of the Eucharist, spiritual and sacramental reception of the Eucharist. The sacrament is received by any recipient who would, who would take it, but the benefits, that which is reality only of the sacrament, will only be received by those who are properly disposed, 
those who are in a state of grace, those who are not conscious of any mortal sin that has been unconfessed. So this sign of friendship does require and demand that we be in this state of friendship, in this state of graced friendship with Christ. And it in turn strengthens and sustains that state of graced friendship with Christ when we are receiving it rightly. Hmm, that's really helpful and clarifying. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Dr. Michael Hahn, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary Seminary. We are discussing aspects of the Eucharistic theology of St. Thomas Aquinas. So in the Eucharist as Sacrament of Charity as the way of that you've helped us to grow in our understanding of it here, thinking especially in terms of the present moment, if you will, the sacrament as communion. If we were to think then following Thomas to this other mode of signification, let's say more towards the future, oriented toward the future glory, he speaks, I think, as you said, of the Eucharist as viaticum. Help us to understand what he has in mind when he speaks of the Eucharist at viaticum, and maybe in the same way, what does it bestow upon us, the sacrament? Maybe if, it, if it's helpful to think in these terms, what does it call forth from us? Yeah, so in later theology, this name viaticum comes to be sort of a term of art designating the Eucharistic reception that accompanies last rites. But Aquinas conceives of it more broadly in its etymological sense of provision for a journey, the necessities in via tecum, what you take with you on the way. So, so the Eucharist is such a necessity precisely because of the grace, the, the nourishment that it provides. It is, he says, requisite for the spiritual life and, and more specifically requisite for the consummation of the spiritual life, for attaining to the, the end of the spiritual journey. And the end, of course, is God and, and beatifying union with God. So Aquinas is able to kind of capitalize on the sign value of the Eucharist under the form of food and drink. So likening the Eucharist to the necessity of nourishment for the preservation of bodily life. So just as bodily nourishment consists in food and drink, so too the spiritual nourishment of the Eucharist, the use of which entails a, an eating and a drinking that he says strengthens and cheers the soul in a manner akin to the effects of bread and wine on the body. So it, it serves to sustain and replenish and give increase and provide delight for those who are on the way. And, and he, he goes further and says it, the, the sacrament possesses a, a most powerful virtue to give entrance to eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. And so this is how he is kind of conceiving of this name viaticum, that the Eucharist is food for wayfarers, for those who are journeying toward, but not yet arrived at their heavenly homeland. So it's proportioned both to the destination of this journey, but also to the journeyer's distance therefrom. Mm. One of the ways in which he, he kind of elaborates on this is considering the extent to which only humans can receive this sacrament. He knows, of course, of Psalm 78, they ate the bread of the angels. Uh, he adopts this, of course, in his hymnody, perhaps most famously in the hymn Panis Angelicus. But he is aware of kind of the Eucharistic interpretation given to this. To what extent is the Eucharist the bread of the angels? Certainly, I think this helps to get at an eschatological element kind of future pointing. This is something that you, that the angels enjoy now, something that 
humans are made to participate and share in? To what extent then will we say that the angels are receiving this sacrament? To what extent are we receiving what it is the angels are receiving? And here too, Aquinas will come back to this distinction between sacramental and spiritual eating. So the spiritual eating is, of course, the, the reception of the sacrament so as to also partake of its spiritual effect, to be joined to Christ through faith and charity, not merely to receive the sacrament, but to also receive the fruit of the sacrament. And he will go on to say that right, this spiritual reception can, in fact, be enjoyed even simply by desire thereof on the part of the wayfarer. This spiritual reception, he says, is also present and enjoyed by the angels and the blessed in heaven. But, but here he's going to introduce a distinction. He says that Christ is eaten spiritually under his proper species by the angels and the blessed in heaven, and that this is the bread that we hope for in heaven. So the nature of the Eucharist as viaticum, and here the, the Eucharist as, we could say, bread of the angels, is something that we are invited to share in, but he'll specify that there is an imperfection that characterizes the reception of the wayfarer, right? It's the same Christ who is received spiritually in the sacrament of the Eucharist, received by those who are wayfarers and also those who are in heaven. And this forms the basis for the ecclesial unity of both angels and humans, those in heaven and on earth. But this sacramental eating of him under the species of bread and wine is, again, proportioned to the wayfaring state. It's proportioned to faith rather than beatific vision. Hmm. And in this regard, it doesn't belong to the angels or to the blessed to eat Christ spiritually in the sacrament. That is, it is a non-sacramental spiritual eating that, that they are enjoying. But it is still an eating of Christ, and it is perhaps most pointedly an enjoyment of Christ in charity. So he'll say, for instance, in this is in question 80, article two, that for us, the receiving of Christ in the sacrament is ordained to the enjoyment of the heavenly homeland as to its end in the same way as the angels enjoy it. Mm. Therefore, he says that that eating of Christ by which we receive him is in some way derived from that eating by which the angels enjoy Christ in heaven. Uh, so it belongs in that sense to the angels and to the blessed principally, and to us secondarily. And this is in large part because of the imperfection of the charity that we possess. It's not that, that it is diminished, but that we retain always the possibility of leaving the way, yeah. of extinguishing the new life that we have received in Christ. Those in heaven are no longer subject or susceptible to this loss. The charity that they have received has been brought to its completion, its perfection. And that's really, right. we can think in terms of completion rather than sometimes perfection can, can be a, a maximal construal, but it's, it's the completion of it, that they cannot turn away. They are, they are not susceptible to turning away, whereas we are. And so this is, I think, a, a key difference that is introduced. And this also, I think, gets at then the demands that this eschatological aspect of the mm. Eucharist makes of us that it is given to us so that we can continue on the way. It provides this strength. It provides this sustenance. But we have to bear in mind that even as it enables a certain degree of communion and unity, not only among fellow wayfarers, but also with those in heaven, so too it also demand, it demands that we uh, strive to remain in this communion and unity. I'm thinking here, like, I, I love what you what you pointed out there, the completion rather than the perfection. And in terms of 
the way in which the angels and the blessed partake in the, you could say the Eucharist, but not not here in, and maybe that's not the right way to speak of it for Thomas, not here as sacramental, but as the enjoyment fully of his glory of the beatific life with him. And the way in which he spoke about it, that we, if I'm hearing you correctly, are still susceptible to not receiving him well, or we're we're still progressing towards that full receptivity to him. And it it seems to call to mind for me a resonance with what you were talking about just in the in the previous section as the sacramental grace that is imparted, imparting the habit, but also the act of charity and act of love and desire. Our love, our act, our love and desire is not yet complete for him. And so I suppose I just want to think about what you said, that the angels receive him under the proper species, the the blessed do, that that doesn't mean we receive him in an improper species. It's that we're not yet perhaps capable or fully exercised to receive him as he is in all of his fullness with complete love and desire. And so I want to ask, that's a very long way of getting to this point, like in what way then does Thomas or does he speak about the healing effects of the Eucharist for us now to perhaps heal us of our imperfection, incompleteness, lack of desire, lack of love, measured towards the fullness of that desire, the fullness of that love, when we share in the beatific glory? Well, when he's discussing the effects of the Eucharist, you know, he, he wants to address how it is that this healing aspect is is present. Certainly the sacraments are kind of ordained for a twofold purpose. One is, we, we might say, a, a more positive account of our sanctification and our being brought to eternal life. But the, the other aspect is a little bit more negative, and that is with respect to sin. And so if you're healthy, you don't need healing. Uh, but of course, there is an aspect of uh, unhealth, of unwellness that, that, we are, that we are subject to. And so in that regard, he will speak of the effects of Eucharist as healing from sin. Most properly, you will say the Eucharist is going to heal and serve to forgive venial sins. Uh, and this precisely because of the charity that it imparts. If there is attachment to venial sin, he will say, uh, right, that attachment will will sort of impede the healing process. But to the extent that we are able to to turn from even these smaller, more minor venial sins, and and turn ourselves to Christ with His with His help, kind of allowing Him to to turn us to Him, this act of charity that the Eucharist imparts is itself adequate. He says for mm-hmm. the healing of sins. And, and, and he's able to kind of draw on Ambrose here in reflecting on the Eucharist as daily bread, that just as there are daily weaknesses that the body is subject to, and so there is need for daily sustenance, so too there are daily weaknesses of the soul, imperfections <clears throat> that arise that the Eucharist is especially given by Christ to, to heal us of. He actually goes even further, though. He, he, he poses the question in question 79, whether the Eucharist will forgive even mortal sins. And his answer to this in good scholastic fashion is sort of <laughs> yes and no. <laughs> he knows, as I've already mentioned, that this is the sacrament of charity. It is a sacrament that is given 
to those that are in graced friendship with Christ. But he, he adds an additional comment with regard to what is contained in the sacrament, and that is Christ himself, and also what is represented in the sacrament, which is Christ's passion. And he says, right, Christ himself and Christ's passion are in themselves sufficient to forgive all sin, not only venial sin, but also mortal sin. The Mm -hmm. sacrament is not instituted by Christ for the removal of mortal sin. For this, we have baptism, and after baptism, the sacrament of penance or confession. Yet, nonetheless, there is present in the Eucharist the power of Christ himself, the power of Christ's passion. It is not to be received by those who are conscious of mortal sin. But he'll go so far as to say that if a recipient did have unconfessed mortal sin, that he or she was not conscious of, this sacrament is itself sufficient to forgive even that forgotten mortal sin, that they find themselves to be as well disposed as they can be. And it's not that this is just sort of papered over, but that the very power of the sacrament, the healing power of the sacrament is sufficient to reestablish the recipient in this graced friendship with our Lord. Mm. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on the Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Michael Hahn, Assistant Professor of Sacred Scripture at Mount St. Mary's Seminary. We are discussing aspects of St. Thomas Aquinas and his Eucharistic theology. So, Michael, in what you were just speaking of, you touched on Christ's passion, that this Christ's passion is made present, contained within the sacrament in Christ himself. And I suppose that brings us sort of naturally to this third sense of signification within the Eucharist here that we started with right from the beginning, which is the past of Christ's sacrifice, the way in which the Eucharist is memorial here, the sacrifice. I wonder if we can then bring our attention to that mode of signification and help us to grasp something that Thomas brings to our attention, which is that this way towards configuration to Christ's glory is, in fact, by way of configuration to Christ crucified. It would seem that this is a movement backwards, maybe, to go forward. But help us to grasp the importance of this in Thomas's Eucharistic theology. Yeah. So, as I mentioned at the outset, right, the Eucharist's representation of Christ's passion in the past is kind of the the link that he makes with the name uh, of sacrifice. And, and Aquinas addresses the Eucharist as sacrifice at a number of points in his treatise on the Eucharist that runs from seven, question 73 to question 83 in the third part of the Summa. But he addresses it most directly in the first article of its final question. He asks whether the Eucharist is a sacrifice. And he has two different respects in which he wants to talk about the way in which the Eucharist is rightly called a sacrifice, is itself a sacrifice. The first of these is with regard to its representation. And this, I think, kind of fits most fully with what he had said earlier with regard to the names of the, of, of the mm-hmm. sacrament. But he says that the Eucharist is a sacrifice insofar as it is an image representing Christ's passion. And here he has in mind the, the double consecration of the Eucharist, that the consecration of the blood apart from that of the body expressly, manifestly represents their separation in Christ's death. 
Hmm. He is certainly not of the view that Christ's body and blood are separated now, right? Christ is risen, Christ is glorified, Christ is ascended. And yet, at one particular time in the past, his body and blood were separated. Likewise, his soul and body were separated in death. Mm. And so this separation of body and blood that occurred on the cross in Christ's passion is brought to mind by the double consecration within the ritual of the mass. And so precisely in this representational imaging of Christ's passion, he says that there is a sacrificial element. He also affirms a second sense in which the Eucharist is sacrificed, and he says it's because by it, we, the recipients, are made partakers of the fruit of Christ's passion. And this includes both the remission of sins and entrance into holy, in, into heavenly glory. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and so in, in both of these respects, with regard to its its kind of signification or its its representation, and also with regard to the bestowal of its effect, he wants to tie together the sacrifice that, that occurs on the cross with the sacrifice that is occurring on the altars of the church throughout the world. Identifying these not as different sacrifices, or the Eucharist is not for Aquinas a sacrifice different from or in addition to that of Christ's passion. Eucharist and passion are for Thomas one sacrifice, the sacrifice of the new law. So in this one sacrifice that we would come to receive in the Eucharist, how, as you said, like we are made partakers in his passion, but, and I hate to ask a question that sounds like we're trying to get into the sort of mechanics of this, but how are we configured to that sacrifice? What does it mean for us to become partakers of his passion? For Thomas, the answer to that lies most specifically with regard to the charity with which Christ embraced this suffering and death on our behalf. Certainly, Thomas will have plenty to say about the extent of physical suffering, the extent of spiritual or emotional suffering involved in the Passion. So the we could say that the quantity or the quality of the suffering isn't something that is ignored, but the power of this suffering, the power, the salvific efficacy of Christ's passion is for Thomas, especially tied to uh, the love that animates, that motivates the offering that is made. And so if we're going to be talking about configuration to Christ, it is going to, it's going to be, especially with regard to configuration to this incarnate divine love. Mm. This might take in the case of martyrs, a, a very we could say literal imitation Mm -hmm. involving the shedding of blood. It doesn't need to take that shape. It doesn't need to take that form, but the commonality, the, 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 the common thread that would be running throughout the Christiformity that all of the blessed in heaven possess is that there is configuration to Christ crucified specifically with regard to undergoing in charity, that which is, given to them. Mm. The emphasis here, I think, as we heard throughout, is on the charity of Christ, the charity of Christ, the love with which he makes the sacrifice, the love that forms the communion of the church and the members to him, the love that is there for the blessed in the fullness of time to which we are journeying. This 
I think you have shared this with me elsewhere that part of this configuration, his his treatment of the configuration to the passion of the Christ for the sake of the configuration to his glory is part of Thomas's treatment on Romans 8, that here we find Christ, who is the love of God, the Son of God, who wills to take on a likeness with us in our sinful flesh, in our sinfulness. And I wonder if you can help us to kind of track Thomas there as he's reading Romans. In what way is there an exchange of what he does in taking on our likeness for what we receive in being united in his image as son of the Father? Yeah, I mean, I think the the key here, one, one thing that we wouldn't want to lose sight of in an emphasis on Christ or on charity is the tremendous importance of the Holy Spirit. Mm. And so kind of Romans 8 as something of a gravitational center for Thomas's soteriology, his, his understanding of salvation, right? Romans 8 is where we find uh, Paul speaking about we who have received the spirit of sonship, <clears throat> that, that we cry, Abba, Father, that, that our address of God the Father as Father is, uh, on account of our configuration, as sons to the one who is son by nature. But this configuration is itself the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who is himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And the, the particular verse that I have in mind is, is Romans 8, 17, where, where Paul says that if we are children, then we are heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ. And the key here uh, is what he says next, provided that we suffer with him mm. in order that we may also be glorified with him. And but in his commentary on Romans 8, Thomas elaborates on this verse specifically with regard to configuration to Christ. And here I'm just going to quote from a, a portion of the commentary. He says, right, Paul shows why this glorious life is delayed when he says, if we suffer with him. Right? Christ, the principal heir, attained to the inheritance of glory through suffering, through suffering on our behalf, I, I would add. Continuing with Thomas, he says, we must not expect to obtain the inheritance by an easier way. We do not receive an immortal and unsuffering body at once. Why? In order that we might suffer along with Christ. Hence, Paul says, if we suffer with him, that is, along with Christ, endure the tribulations of this world patiently in order that we may also be glorified with Christ. And this ties actually, I think, very neatly into other of Thomas's reflections on the Eucharist, the power of the Eucharist, the effects of the Eucharist as, as being ultimately heavenly glory. He, he, in focusing on Christ's passion as cause of glory, he stresses that right, the passion and the fruits thereof, which are made available to us in the Eucharist, this is the sufficient cause of our glory. Hmm. Right? So the Eucharist is rightly and truly the cause of our glorification, the perfection of our sanctification. But he, but he specifies that this isn't in such a way that we are admitted to glory immediately. We must first suffer with Christ in order that we may be glorified after with him. The sacrament doesn't admit us at once to glory. It bestows on us the power of coming into glory. And, and that this, I think, reflects a certain attentiveness on Aquinas's part to what we might call the, the cruciform shape 
that incarnate love takes. This shape is taken by our Lord, who is the model, who is the exemplar. And yet this is done not in such a way that we have no share in it, but rather so as to render us capable of receiving a share in it. Mm. And that in the here and now, reception of the Eucharist is an embrace of the suffering out of love that is made manifest on the cross, a sacrifice that is one that we are invited to join ourselves to in whatever ways that that might occur in our in our daily life but that this is always with an eye to a configuration to Christ's glory that just as Christ having suffered is raised and glorified so too this serves as the the exemplar for uh, our own salvation that we too will suffer out of love with him and come to be raised in glory with him mm. You know, I've got to ask you just before we go, thinking of all of this and tracking the subtlety, the beauty, but also just this unbelievable coherence of Thomas's Eucharistic theology. When you make, if I can ask you personally, you know, when you make that trip up the aisle to receive the Eucharist, the simple gift of the bread and the wine, his body, his blood, are these things like bouncing around in your head? Are you are you thinking of Thomas's Eucharistic theology as you go up there? Or how has the study of this maybe shaped your own reception? That's a great question. Um, <laughs> I can say that this is to my my credit or not. Uh, I'm not, I'm certainly not thinking of particular questions and articles <laughs> in uh, the treaties on the Eucharist. It doesn't dispose you to love necessarily, I understand. Yeah. But but I, I do think. For my own part, I find Thomas's reflections on the Eucharist to be a tremendous source of kind of material for contemplation and the firing of my own devotion. Mm. There is, I think, uh, a unique value to the 11 questions in the Eucharist that he writes at the very end of his career before he, before he uh, ceases all of his writing activities and then eventually dies. And, and the reason is it, it provides a whole host of avenues for consideration. You can uh, kind of drift even further backward in time to kind of Old Testament figures of the salvation that is won for us by Christ, Old Testament figures of this sacrament of the Eucharist. You can be calling attention to what it is that is being represented with regard to, to Christ's passion and and you know dwell on this. And of course, Aquinas has just a great deal to say about that. Aquinas is many comments on the grace and charity and ecclesial unity that are conferred and strengthened in this sacrament. You know, to what extent am I entering into this communion of the saints in my own uh, reception of the sacrament? To what extent am I striving to open myself to others, both within the church here and now and, and in other churches throughout the world, and those who are, as yet in Thomas's terms, only potential members of Christ's mystical body, not yet actualized, but then also kind of calling to mind these, you know, future oriented aspects of Thomas's Eucharistic theology, that, that there is an invitation here to communion, not only with those who are fellow wayfarers on earth, but also to those who have reached the end of the journey, to the angels, to the saints, to the Blessed Virgin. What is on offer in this sacrament is an opportunity to embrace our Lord in love in such a way that that embrace is never lost. Mm. So I, I think certainly that there's 
much fruitful ground for academic study. It's, it's not that these questions are necessarily easy or straightforward for, for just anyone to read, but I do think that they are profitable and rewarding. And, and certainly for my own part, I find their study to be deeply conducive to trying to cultivate a deeper uh, Eucharistic piety, a deeper Eucharistic reverence and devotion, a deeper love for our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Indeed. Well, Michael, I must thank you for bringing some of the fruits of that intense study to us for our benefit to think with you and think with Thomas Aquinas, but also perhaps to fire our own devotion for the Eucharist here by following what you're leading us into and for the great gift that you've given us. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Lenny. And thanks to all of you for joining us on Church Life today. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit SpokeStreet.com. Ave Maria Press has been publishing Catholic books and resources for more than 150 years, and they are located right on the north side of the Notre Dame campus. Visit AveMariaPress.com for a wide selection of spirituality books, classic Catholic literature, and even books for families. You can also find podcasts and free downloadable Catholic content. Visit AveMariaPress.com and receive 25% off your order with code REDEEMER. Ave Maria Press, helping people to know, love, and serve God.